Welcome to FBC Wixom. We are so glad that you've joined us for worship today. Here are a few things to help you stay connected. We are planning a special men's meeting on Tuesday, October 10th at 6 a.m. This will be a great time of delicious food, fellowship, prayer, teaching, and worship. You can sign up at the table in the link. Don't miss this special start to the day with other Christian brothers. Weather permitting, we are planning to take our church-wide picture today after the morning worship. Please plan to stay for a few extra minutes after dismissal and gather on the north side of the gym for a quick photo. Community groups continue tonight at 6 p.m. If you are not yet connected with a Sunday evening community group, please visit fbcwixom.org forward slash community groups for more information. Community groups meet in homes on most Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. 
Young couples, you are invited to participate in Marriage Mentoring. This is a one-year program designed to strengthen your marriage by partnering you with an experienced married couple for monthly biblical counsel and encouragement. If you are interested or if you have any questions, please see Johnny Martin or Pastor Brad after the gathering this morning. In just a few minutes, we'll be dismissing children of four years to the third grade out the back of the auditorium to our junior church ministry. While there, they will enjoy a great time as they sing songs, play games, and hear a message from God's Word prepared just for them. The ministry of First Baptist Church is funded entirely by the voluntary gifts of God's people. This is an important part of our worship as we unite together in a tangible way to advance the priorities of Jesus in our community and beyond. If you'd like to participate in worship by giving, please utilize the giving box in the back of the auditorium, request a weekly gift be sent directly from your bank to the church office, or you can give online at fbcwixon.org and click on the giving tab at the top of the page. Thank you for partnering together with the rest of the church to advance the cause of Christ. If this is your first time at FBC, we would love to connect with you. If you would like more info about FBC, prayer, or to learn how you can get involved, you can fill out a connections card online at fbcwixom.org forward slash connect. Also, make sure to stop by the Welcome Center for a special gift on your way out after the service. Once again, thank you for joining us for worship today. Now we invite you to worship the Lord through song as we prepare to hear from God's Word this morning. Good morning, everyone. Special welcome to you today, and especially our guests. We're happy to have you here at First Baptist Church this morning. On the announcement video, you heard that the churchwide picture is going to be today. That is incorrect. It is going to be next Sunday, weather permitting. I know today is a beautiful day, uh, but if you're on the church email list, you received an email this week explaining that that needed to be postponed for several reasons. And so we hope that next Sunday, You'll be able to stick around after the morning gathering. We'll just go right outside, take a quick photo, and then dismiss from there. And we hope that you can be part of that. Also, coming up four weeks from yesterday is a special event here at First Baptist Church. This year, we are doing what we call a Fall Fest, and it is in the place of Trunk or Treat. And I want to be really clear, this is not an attempt to rebrand this event with a new name. This is a slightly different event, some different activities that will be taking place, more games and even a more family-friendly kind of environment. There's some fun things that are planned for that. It is going to be on October the 28th from 1 to 3 in the afternoon, and there, I think there's a sign-up sheet in the back. If not, there will be one soon. If you have questions about that, you can see Angela Victory or Johnny Martin. They can help you with that. This event is intended to have a bigger emphasis on evangelism. Next year, next calendar year, um, I'm going to be preaching a series of messages from the Gospels, a chronological look at the life of Jesus, And so during this event, we're going to be giving each of the adults a Gospel of John with an invitation to come and participate in our worship as we talk about the life of Jesus. And so we want to use this event to connect better with our community, and we hope that you'll be a part of it. This morning, we're going to uh, celebrate communion as part of our worship. And uh, this morning, I want to give you just a little bit of an explanation about what we're doing as we, as we worship the Lord through communion. Michael, would you please take me down just a little bit? It's echoey up here. I appreciate that. So Jesus in John chapter 6, you might remember, 
teaches about being the bread of life. I don't know if you remember that in John chapter 6, but it's at the end of that teaching that many of the crowd leave him. They say, this is just a little bit weird. We cannot follow this guy. He's talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And he really is giving a precursor here to the idea of communion. And so I want to explain it and make sure that we are kind of all on the same page. Today, in our service at this time, we have our children with us. So first thing to explain is this. Parents, if your kids are with you, it's probably best if you're sitting close to one another and you explain to them that it's time to participate in communion or that they should wait to participate. Because we believe that communion is rightly celebrated in a close fellowship. And that does not mean that You have to be a member of this church. It doesn't mean you have to be a regular attender of this church. What it means is that the biblical idea of communion is that it's celebrated by believers, that people who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who've examined their life and say, I believe I'm not only right with God through Jesus, but I'm right with others as well. I'm not harboring sin. I'm not harboring bitterness. There's nobody that I need to ask forgiveness of, and there's nobody that I'm withholding forgiveness from. My relationship with God is right, and my relationship with others is right. Jesus said these are the two great commandments, love God and love others, and on those two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. And so what we're responsible to do is examine ourselves and say, yes, that's me. If that's not you, it's totally okay to let this the, the, the plates pass by you and nobody's going to highlight you or, or, or confront you or anything. We want you to let it pass by you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, do not participate unworthily. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't, if you don't know for sure you're on your way to heaven, if you're not right with God and right with others, then don't participate. But back to John chapter 6. So in John chapter 6... Jesus has just fed the 5,000. You remember that story in the Gospels? Jesus feeds the 5,000. He he breaks up these fish and these loaves and he feeds this great multitude of people. And then they take up these baskets of food afterwards and people are blown away. In the first century, as in many places in the world today, food is the most essential thing, right? You got to have food. And people are thinking about food. For most of you, you got a crock pot going or a reservation already made. You pretty much know what the lunch menu is going to be. For them, it was a moment-by-moment issue of sustenance. And so when Jesus fed the 5,000, this was a big deal. This was a game-changer for Israel. If we've got a guy here who can make food out of nothing, this changes everything. And so they look for him when he leaves. And Jesus goes to the other side of the lake And they go around the lake and they find him. And it says this in John chapter 6, verse 25. And when they find him on the other side of the sea, they say to him, Rabbi, how did you come here? And Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me, not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Jesus says, the only reason you want me is because I can feed you. That's it. And then he says, don't labor for the food, the meat, which perishes or goes away, but labor for the meat, which endures unto everlasting life, which the son of man shall give unto you for him hath God, the father sealed. Then they said unto him, what shall we do that we could do the works of God? And Jesus said unto them, believe this is the work of God. Believe. And we've talked about this many times, like this is the big 
question that humanity is faced with. Will you believe? Will you turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, trusting that he can forgive you and give you eternal life in heaven? Will you believe? This is the work of God. And they said unto him, what sign will you give us? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're basically telling Jesus, look, if you're this guy who we're looking for, if you're the Messiah, give us some more food. Prove it by making some bread out of nothing. Jesus said to them, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and gives life unto the world. Then they said unto him, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger. And he that believes on me shall never thirst. So Jesus clearly is talking spiritually now. He's not talking about physical bread. You eat physical bread, you're going to be hungry in a few hours. Okay? If you're a teenage boy, you're going to be hungry in like minutes after you eat physical bread. And that, so he's clearly talking about spiritual things. And then he says in verse 47, he that believes on me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh. Then the Jews said, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, here's where Jesus gets controversial. He says, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood hath eternal life. No wonder many of them said, I can't take that teaching. I'm leaving. This, by the way, this passage of Scripture has been construed by some gatherings that call themselves Christian to say that when they have communion, they're actually eating the, the body and drinking the blood of Christ. That is not what Jesus is teaching. And we know that's not what he's teaching because he says in verse number 63 at the very end, it is the spirit that quickeneth or makes alive. The flesh, what you eat physically, doesn't matter at all. He says it profits nothing. It is the words that I speak unto you. They are spirit and they are life. But what Jesus is saying is you must eat of me in a spiritual sense. You must get your life from me. You must have my DNA coursing through your veins spiritually. Believe. It's all about believe. Repent from your sin and put your faith in Jesus. So we're going to eat just a little bit of bread and drink a little bit of juice. And it is not going to do anything to stave off your hunger for very long. That's not the point. Jesus says, the point is, if you participate in me, if my body, which was broken on the cross, is broken for you because you believe, if my blood, which was spilled from the cross, has been spilled for you because you believe, then spiritually you will never hunger and you will never thirst. So this is a beautiful picture. We as a church will gather around these elements and as we eat this bread, we say, look, Jesus' broken body on the cross is my sacrifice. He's my Savior. I'm in Him. His spilled blood from the cross is my payment. I accept that payment for my sin. And communally, together, we share the testimony that we're in Jesus. 
This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, if you're not in Jesus, don't eat. If you're not in Jesus, if you're not right with God, don't drink. Don't drink unworthily. This is a testimony. You're telling everyone around you, I'm in Jesus and Jesus is in me. So I'm going to have the guys come. Deacons, if you would come, please, right up to the front. Let's prepare to serve the bread and the juice today. Paul gives instructions about this type of worship in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He reiterates Jesus with his disciples and re-explains what was happening. And then he tells them how to do this together. And so we'll look briefly at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in just a moment. But guys, if you would stand with us and let's have a word of prayer and ask God to bless this time of worship together. Father, we're so grateful for Jesus. We're grateful that every week as we gather together as a body, we can lift him up. We can sing praise to him. We can celebrate the victory that we have in him. Lord, thank you that because of Jesus, we can have confidence that our sins are forgiven and we can spend eternity in your presence. Thank you that we can celebrate that together today. And so as we eat this bread and we think about the broken body of Jesus, Lord, may we not only share our testimony with one another that we are in you and you are in us, but help us also to celebrate, celebrate the blessing of forgiveness today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
So in Paul's explanation in 1 Corinthians, he says this, that when Jesus had given thanks for the bread, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is or represents my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. Men, if you would please stand with us again. And Jeremy, would you please thank the Lord for the spilt blood of Jesus? For this day that you've given us to serve you. Thank you so much for all that you've done for us and how you consistently and constantly encourage us and show us your amazing love, grace, and mercy. And as we focus this time right now on what you've done through us, for us through the gospel, through your death, burial, and resurrection, We think through this time in your life where you were about to go through such heartache and such persecution, but you counted it all joy, knowing that it was for our benefit, knowing that it would redeem us. So thank you for your body, and as we focus on your blood, I'm just so thankful that through your death and through the shedding of your blood, there is remission of our sins, and you have given that freely to us and graciously even though we do not deserve it i pray lord as we take this time right now to remember that aspect that we will make sure that we ourselves are clean as much as we can right with you right with our fellow man as we think about all you've done for us and we worship you with this in jesus name we pray amen
finished eating, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the New Testament or the promise, the covenant in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you, men. I'm going to have the team come and prepare to sing, if you would, please. This morning, our worship passage is Psalm number 91. And in Psalm 91, the psalmist talks about God being a refuge, a refuge that we can run to. And we're going to sing now this great song, You Will Hold Me Fast. He will hold me fast. He is the refuge to run to this morning. Let's stand together as we sing this out. As a prayer of thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, for all you do to hold us. When I hear my Like me. 
past the darkness, hope that's in the blood. There's future grace that's mine today, that Jesus Christ has won. So I can face tomorrow, for tomorrow's in your hands. All I need you will provide, just like you always have. I'm fighting a battle that you've already won.
testimony. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. Thank you for that message and song. Psalm 91 is where we're going to be today. Psalm number 91. And here's the challenge. Here's the message. Run to Jesus. Run to God. He has already won the battle. That song helps us, I think, get our minds set for the message of Psalm number 91. We've been in a series of messages this year. We've entitled Albums of worship. What we're trying to do is to look at the Psalms and see who God is and ask this question, Lord, because of who you are, how should I respond? In this message, we want to consider the fact that our God is our refuge. He's our refuge. He is our shadow. He is our shelter. I don't know if you have pets. Many of you know we have two dogs. Our dogs are like shadow magnets you know what i'm saying when it's hot and sunny it doesn't matter where you throw the ball or when you throw the ball if there's a shadow on the way back they're going to find it and they're going to stretch out and they're going to put their belly on the cool grass and they're going to enjoy the shade and the relief from the stress of the sun but shadows are one thing right shelters are a little different a shelter implies protection not just relief but protection. See, it's one thing to want to have stress relieved for a moment, but it's a whole other thing when your world is falling apart and you need protection. You ever been in a really bad storm, maybe huge hailstones or high winds? Mari and I one time were driving in Ohio, of all places, and a chunk of a barn blew off in a, across the highway and hit the side of the car, scared us to death. That's a big storm. You want to be in a shelter. And maybe you can think of a time in your life where you had to seek shelter. My grandparents had an outdoor cellar, a cave in the side of a mountain. And if it was storming outside and you ran into that cave, suddenly it was completely quiet. You couldn't hear the rain, couldn't hear the wind, nothing. Just cool, calm shelter. The silence of safety. Now, if you've ever read this psalm, this is really what it's about. It's finding shelter. It's finding safety in God. But if you read this psalm carefully, it begs for most Christians two really big questions. And I want to spend a little bit of time today before we get into the psalm talking through these things. I was discussing this with Holden this week and we're talking about our responsibility as preachers to not only preach the truth, 
but also to help you receive the truth correctly. That's a responsibility that we have. And to be honest with you, it's not as much fun as preaching the truth, right? It's, it's a little bit more difficult to really think about receiving the truth correctly. But would you do that with me for just a moment this morning before we get into the psalm? Here's the two questions that this psalm usually brings up. Number one, is it messianic? Is this psalm talking about Jesus? If you're familiar with Psalm number 91, you know that somebody quotes this psalm in the New Testament. Does anybody know who it is? Michael? The devil. Satan quotes this psalm and he applies it to Jesus. So usually if a psalm is quoted in the New Testament, we're given a a way to apply it for modern Christians. But if Satan quotes a psalm, we got some questions, right? Did he apply it correctly? Not sure. It might be messianic. It might not be. So that's the first question that comes up. The second question that comes up is, does it apply to the modern church? Does it apply post the cross of Jesus Jesus Christ? Can Christians take this and apply it to themselves Now, a lot of Old Testament quotes and promises for Israel make it onto the walls in Christian homes. Are you with me? This is not necessarily wrong, but the church and Israel are different, right? In fact, I would say that this psalm maybe has been quoted more than any others and stuck on the wall in Christian homes. It's been, Bill, you would say tchotchkeed. I don't know if that's a verb or not, but it's been turned into a slogan that maybe people would hold on to. Not necessarily wrong way to pray unless we're holding God to these things as promises. So we must be careful as we interpret this psalm. It's really tempting to look at it this way as slick little sayings that I can claim as a Christian. Like all of the Psalms, Psalm 91 was written primarily for Israel. You and I do not have claim to the same promises as Israel. Are you with me? Here's what God said to Israel. Hey, if you obey me and you avoid idolatry, you'll stay in the land that I've given you for centuries, for generations. We don't have that promise. We don't have the same promises about the leaders that govern us or the future of our quote-unquote kingdom. Our nation does not have the promise of prosperity like Israel did if they avoid idolatry. The church and Israel are not the same. But there's an even more important reason why we have to be careful interpreting this, not necessarily all of it for the church. Because if you interpret this for the church, you have to allegorize these statements. You have to find some hidden, deeper meaning that's not on the surface. And that can be really risky. Some of this passage is allegorical. Some of it is. For instance, it says that we can find shelter under the wings and feathers of God. Well, God does not have wings and feathers. So it must be meant allegorically. However, as I read through the passage, if I try to assign spiritual meaning to all of these things, it can be very, very confusing. Some commentators, for instance, will tell you, and this kind of lets you into the the difficulty of interpreting a passage for preaching, okay? Some commentaries, good commentators, will tell you 
that the snare referred to in verse 3 of our passage is the snare of riches, 1 Timothy 6, 9. It might be. That's a leap, though. We don't know for sure. Is the pestilence in verse 3 our sin nature? Maybe. The arrows in verse 5, are these the wiles of the devil explained in Ephesians chapter 6? Possibly. But what is the thousand falling at our side? Or the ability to tread unhurt on lions and adders? And clearly, some of this is meant to be interpreted allegorically, but how? If it's not meant to be interpreted allegorically, then it's specifically for somebody, not me. Because these things are not true in my life physically. So we have to be careful not to, to avoid guessing. Let me give you just a quick example, and I think this helps. We talk about this in our school Bible classes, but I don't know that we talk about this much in our church. If you listen to preaching, and by the way, there's just incredible preaching resources online, okay? Um, you're not going to hear the preachers here tell you that these are the best preachers, don't listen to anybody else. We think there are great preachers to listen to online. There are also some really terrible ones to listen to online. Okay, so I was listening to a message one time and this guy read an Old Testament passage and the passage talked about a king who was fortifying the city and he dug a well or he dug a a moat and then he built some walls and he put some bulwarks in place to fortify the city. And then this preacher closed his Bible and he said, let me start telling you about what the moat means. And he made up what the moat meant and he preached on that for about 20 minutes, told some fun stories. It was interesting completely unbiblical then he said let me tell you what the walls mean and he said we need to build some walls in the church and we need to build the wall of this and we need to build the wall of that we need to build it was interesting it was completely unbiblical so what we would encourage you to do is to listen to preaching that way listen to preaching online with a critical ear listen to preaching in this room with a critical ear so this morning if i got up and i told you that i believe here's what the snare means and here's what the the arrows mean, and here's what the pestilence mean, you should be skeptical. Brad, that might mean that to you. I'm not sure that's what it means to God. So why look at Psalm 91? Why do this series at all? This was written for Israel thousands of years ago. Is there something we can learn from this passage? Let me suggest three things, and then we're going to read it together. Number one, God's character does not change. Amen? God's character does not change. He's the same God. So anything we learn about his character from a psalm, I can hold on to that. I serve the same God that they did back then. I'm not Israel, but we serve the same God. Make sense? Number two, God's plan of salvation is eternal. There's gospel truths in the mind of God and in the pen of his writers of Scripture that have been true for eternity. And so if there's gospel truths, I can hold on to those. Secondly, I think there's some things we can give thanks for as a result of meditating on this psalm. While it's dangerous to interpret it allegorically, we have all seen this psalm played out anecdotally. Are you with me? We've all seen a believer live the truths of this psalm. They're in the middle of a hurricane, a personal hurricane. And yet they're calm, cool, and collected. Everything and everyone around them is falling apart, and they seem immune. I've seen this many, many times in healthy Christians. 
It's like they're born on the shoulders of angels. They're fearless. They're indestructible. They're not free from trouble, but it seems like they're unaffected by trouble. It's like a a slow motion scene in a movie where the person is walking and there's a tornado going around them and they're seeing people and animals and parts of houses swirling and they're just walking through the middle of it. You have probably witnessed that. I've witnessed that. Somebody holding on to God And they have the peace of God's shelter and refuge on their life going through a storm. But just because you've seen that lived out doesn't mean that's how we are supposed to interpret this passage. I think we should say, thank God that spiritually he is a refuge that I can hold on to in the middle of an incredible storm. So we must be careful. Now this psalm is paired with psalm number 90. Most commentators would say these two go Together, We don't know who wrote Psalm 91, but Moses wrote 90, so it would make sense if he wrote both of them. It connects greatly with our message last Sunday about training up a new generation of leaders. Because here's what's going on in Psalm number 90. Moses is talking about this generation of people who've been told, hey, you are going to die in the wilderness, right? You're not going into the promised land. You're going to die in the wilderness, God has taken the hourglass and he's flipped it over and you've got an expiration date. It has been determined. You're not going to make it 40 more years. So he says in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish thou the work of our hands Upon us, yea, the work of our hands, establish thou it. By the way, this is a great prayer. If you take seriously the admonition last Sunday morning to work on your get hit by a bus plan. Are you with me? If you took that and you said, okay, you know what, Brad, you said all of us should have in ministry a get hit by a bus plan. Like who's going to take over for me if I get taken out? This is a great way to pray. Listen to what Moses says. Help me see that life is temporary. Help me be satisfied with being in you. Help our children perceive your hand on our lives. Help the work that we do have eternal significance. Moses is writing this to people who know they've got a limited time on earth. So what were they to do? They were to run to God. Run to God. He's the only shelter you can trust in. Psalm 46 verses 1 and 2. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. We will not fear. Psalm 61, verse 1. Hear my cry, O God. Attend unto my prayer. From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I am. For thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the cover of your wings. Now. With that in mind, Psalm 91. Okay, so let's read it together and let's think through a couple of truths this morning. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in him will I trust. Surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with his feathers and under his wings shalt thou trust His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, 
nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked, because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder, the young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high because he hath known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him and I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Would you pray with me for a moment? Father, as we come to your word, we want to make sure we get it right. And Lord, you know the, the struggle in my own heart of taking your word at its face value and getting it right and applying it correctly. And Lord, not being arrogant or proud or thinking that we know what we don't know. Help all of us this morning, including myself, to come into your presence as students. Teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit what we need to know. And help us to forget our own thinking and embrace yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to see a couple of things that we can learn about God the refuge in this passage. They're simple, but I think if you hold on to them, they'll help you. Number one, God is the complete refuge. He's the complete refuge. Refuge. I want to read verses 1 and 2 to you again, and I want to show you that in the Hebrew, God's name is mentioned four times. The interesting thing about it is he has a different name in each spot. In verse number 1, it says, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High. That Most High is the Hebrew uh, uh, proper noun, Elion, which is the name of God. He shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. That's another name of God. I will say of the Lord, another name of God. He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, another name. In him will I trust. Four words that tell us about the completeness of the refuge we find in God. Let me show them to you really quickly. Number one, the most high. As I mentioned, this is Elion. This means ruler over all creation. Deuteronomy 32, 8 tells us that he rules all nations. Psalm 47 verse 2 says he rules the entire earth. Psalm 97 verse 9 says he rules all spiritual powers. He is the God over everything. Remember that it is pride over God that is the oldest sin. What did Satan say? I will ascend to the what? Most high. He said, I want to be above Elion, God the most high. Hi. On Wednesday night, Holden was teaching about Nineveh and Assyria. This was their failing. They said, we want to be above God. The people of Jerusalem said the same thing. We want to be above God. Can I just tell you this morning that God alone is most high. Amen? God alone is most high. He doesn't have rivals. This makes him the best refuge. The world is flooding with sin and the effects of sin. And what the psalmist says, I want to climb the mountain to the most high and take my refuge in the secret place under God. He's above all. He's the ruler of all. He is Elion, the most 
high God. But secondly, he is the almighty, the end of verse number one. This is El Shaddai, the great provider. This is the most popular name for God in the book of Job. It's interesting that God would use this name of his over and over and over again in the book of Job. It's as if he's telling Job, look, why are you whining because I took everything away from you? I'm the one who gave it to you. I'm the provider. And if you just trust me, I will give it to you again. I am El Shaddai. Now, preppers know this, but it's one thing to have a bunker in your backyard in case things go badly. It's a whole nother thing if your bunker is stocked with everything you could possibly need or want, right? You ever watch the video about somebody who does that? You know, they got this concrete box in their backyard. You're like, that might be a good idea if things go badly. And then they dig, come on in. You go down in there and there's this big screen TV and there's a workout bike and there's a refrigerator. And, you know, they got all this, all this stuff stocked for life. They could live in it. This is exactly what the psalmist is saying. When you find refuge in the almighty El Shaddai, excuse me, El Shaddai, El Shaddai he is the great provider. But thirdly, he's the eternal God. We see in our Bibles, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. He is the Lord. This is the name Jehovah. He's the eternal God. He's not going anywhere. Tim and I were out working on the patio this summer. We were using a little pop-up tent as a temporary shade in the, in the really, really hot day. You remember some of those super hot days this summer in June where it was so windy? So we were trying to keep the shade in place, you know, and put some things against it. And we turn around, and and in a moment, that shade is tumbling down the driveway out to the playground, right? And it's a complete mangle of metal and canvas. It's a complete mess. What was the problem? Not a permanent shade, right? Not a permanent shelter. The Lord God, Jehovah, is eternal. He's a fortress that was here long before creation. And he will be here long after my fleeting problems are gone which makes him a complete refuge. He's not only the high God, he's the provider God, and he's the eternal God. And lastly, he is the all-powerful God. Verse number two, it says, My God, in him will I trust. This is Elohim. Elohim, the all-powerful God. Satan has no bunker busters that can defeat this fortress. It is all-powerful. He's my God. He's my refuge. He's my fortress. I have a relationship with him. I can run to him. He protects me. There's a story told of a great stag that was wandering around with great confidence in the days of Caesar. It had a sign hung about its neck and it said this, don't shoot. I belong to Caesar. Now, some of you guys, if you saw that in the woods, you'd whack it anyway. I know, I know you. But In the days of Caesar, that wasn't something you messed with, okay? There's a sign that says, don't shoot, I belong to Caesar. And really, this is how Satan, I think, views God's children. Don't shoot, whoa, 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 that's one of God's. He's running to God for refuge. Sorry, he is off limits. Do you run to him? He's the complete refuge. But I want you to see, secondly, that he is the comprehensive refuge. Comprehensive. Verse number three, surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler, and from the noisome pestilence. He shall deliver you not only from people that would do you harm, but from circumstances that would do you harm. 
Again, these promises are not for us directly, but they tell us about the character of God. And that is that the character of God is comprehensive. He covers his own. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you ever. It's comprehensive protection. The greatest insurance plan ever. Jesus said, I will never leave you. Paul said, here's my testimony. If I live, I'm with Christ. If I die, I'm with God. You can't hurt me. I have the greatest protection plan. His refuge is comprehensive. A friend recently recommended a TV series to me, and I started watching it. And it's about these guys trying to survive in the wilderness. And i got to tell you, I think I'd last five minutes. Five minutes. I mean, I feel like I'm a fairly self-sufficient person, but all alone in the wilderness with wild beasts? Not good. Not good for me. I would not last. I just ask you a question, like, what do you fear? What do you fear? I want you to think about this passage for just a second, because I think this is the right way for us to look at verses 3 through 13. It is, you might say, a catalog of human fear. If you read it in the Old English, it sounds a little artistic and flowery and not that scary. But can I just tell you, these are scary things. Here's what he talks about. He talks about the fear of capture. I've never been actually captured, but that seems to me like that would be scary. That's verse number three. He talks about disease, real disease, not the flu, but the pestilence, something that'll kill you. In verse number five, he talks about darkness brings human fear and death, certainly something that humans fear and pain. Verse number 10 in verse number 12, he talks about falling. That's a big one for me. Right? I'm not super afraid of heights. I'm just afraid of the trip down and the ending, right? Falling from heights. Predators, verse number 13. Most of us are a little afraid of predators. Here's the point. God is the comprehensive refuge. He covers all human fears. It doesn't matter what the particulars are. Run to God, right? It's not. So the psalmist, I think, is saying this. Like, Don't be like, you know what I'm super, super afraid of? It's this. Let me see if it's in there. Ah, rats, not in there. God must not be a good refuge for that fear. You know what he's saying is, look, every fear of man, whatever you can think of, it's there. God is a refuge from that fear. What are you afraid of? God is the comprehensive refuge. There's an old missionary story about a a guy that was serving in Africa, and there was this incredible fire that went through the village, and it burned everything, all of the tents, all of the Houses, all of the roofs and structures, animals, fences, everything destroyed by this fire. And he was walking down the path, just looking at the smoldering remains. And he saw this lump in the pathway and he gave it a kick and realized it was a dead hen that was laying there. And when he kicked it gently, it rolled over and underneath it were her little chicks all doing just fine. Underneath the feathers and the wings of the protective And this, I think, is the picture that the psalmist is giving us in Psalm 91. Hey, get underneath the protection of God. Did you know God is willing to die for you? He gave Jesus Christ to suffer your hell for you. You can hide under his wings. He's the comprehensive refuge from all fears. And lastly, he's the compassionate refuge. Now, this one, to me, is mind-blowing you got to hang with me, okay? If you fell asleep, come back to us because this one is really important. He's the compassionate 
refuge. The psalm ends with some really encouraging verses, but if you think about them, they're kind of challenging. There's an amazing truth here about our God that is sort of hidden below the surface that you've got to dig and think to get. And that is this, because of his compassion, he is the initiator of refuge. He's the initiator. Let me show you what I mean. In, in verse number 14, it says that he will deliver somebody and that he will elevate somebody. In verse number 15, he says, I will answer somebody. I will go with somebody. I will deliver somebody. In verse number 16, I will satisfy somebody. I will save somebody. Well, who's the somebody? Who is he talking about? Well, he lists three qualifications for people that he'll do these things for. The one who loves me, the one who knows me, and the one who seeks me. The one who loves me, the one who knows me, and the one who seeks me. But here's what I want you to see this morning. Nobody loves God unless he loves him first. Nobody seeks God unless he seeks him first. Nobody knows God unless he reveals himself to people. It is all dependent on God and his compassion. Check this out. Watch this. He's the initiator of refuge. He says, I will do these things for the one that loves me. But 1 John 4.19 says, we love him because he what? He first loved us. I can't initiate love for God. I like to think that I can, but I can't. I'm born in love with somebody. It's not God. It's me. It takes God to intervene, to initiate, to change me. He loves me and he teaches me to love him back. And then in verse number 14 it says, Because he hath set his love on me, therefore I will deliver him. You see the beauty of this? Think about this in the context of the the character of God. Look at it. He says this, Because of my character, I will deliver you as a refuge from every fear in your life. But I will only deliver you if you set your love on me. But you can't set your love on me. So I will love you so you can set your love on me. It's like he gives us the faith to believe. Remember what this says, uh, scripture tells us in Ephesians, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, that's a gift of God. In other words, the faith, To believe in God is a gift from God so that when you take that faith and you apply it to Jesus Christ, that he'll give you eternal life. It is all of his grace. The fact that he's a refuge is because of his compassion, his grace to us. He's the initiator. He doesn't ask people here to be without sin or perfectly obedient or worthy, just in love with God, in love with God. Number two, it says he will do these things for the one who knows him. But again, I can't know him unless he makes himself known. Hebrews chapter one and verse one, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. I don't know about you, but I didn't ask God to send the prophets. I didn't ask God to write his word. I didn't ask God to give us Jesus. He did all that of his grace. That was all initiated by God the Father. Verse number 14 says in our passage, I will set him on high because he hath known my name. Who knows the name of God? Only people he reveals it to. He is the initiator of his own protection. 
And then lastly, he will do these things for the one that seeks him. But how many people seek God? Nobody does, according to Romans chapter 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeks after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. My heart does not seek God on its own. My heart does not want God on its own. He must draw me to himself. He must, as Jesus said, seek and save the lost, because the lost are not seeking to be saved by him. Verse number 15, he will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him. I will deliver him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. So many people look at God as oppressive. Do you know unbelievers who have no interest in God because they're like, I don't want, that's just oppressive. Like God's just a bunch of rules. I don't want to be a part of a church. I don't want to give my life to Jesus Christ. He might ask me to do something I don't want to do. It's oppressive. And yet the psalmist says, no, no, God is not oppressive. God is the solution. He is the refuge you are looking for. He is freeing. I want you to think for just a minute about the Titanic. Remember when that thing was going down? Most of the people on board were panicked. The passengers were having a hard time that day, right? But the lobsters in the kitchen, they were having the day of their life. (laughs) Miraculous escape, right? What did they need to do? All they had to do is start paddling, right, and plunge into rescue. It kind of depends on your perspective, right? Here's what the psalmist says. Hey, jump into the ocean of God's protection. Just jump in. Yeah, it might look a little scary. You might have your doubts, but jump in. In He is the almighty God. You can run to him and he will protect you. This is what the three Hebrew children found out in the Old Testament, right? When they were thrown into the fiery furnace. Here's what they said. Literally, we'd rather die with God than live without him. We'd rather hang out in the fiery furnace with Jesus than to sit on the beach in a lawn chair without him. We'd rather be with God. The great refuge. So let me give you three conclusions quickly. Number one, let's worship the eternal, all-powerful ruler and provider today. Worship him. Number two, would you turn your biggest fear over to him? You know what it is. Just pick it out in your own mind. This is the one thing that really gets me worried. Can I encourage you to take a moment as we conclude our service and just pray and turn it over to the Lord? Lord, I'm going to give that fear to you. You say you're the comprehensive refuge. I'm going to give it to you. And then thirdly, would you thank God for initiating his protection and then responding to it? He loves you. Are you loving him back? He's revealed himself to you. Are you increasing in the knowledge of God? He seeks you. Are you seeking him with your whole heart? He wants to show you his salvation. He wants to show you what it means to be a child of God in Jesus Christ, to turn from your sin and to put your faith in Jesus Christ. He wants to show you that. Will you put your faith in him? He is the great refuge. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for showing us your character. And this morning, I want to thank you for being the all-powerful, loving, eternal provider. Lord, I want to thank you for covering every fear in our lives with your protection. 
But mostly, Lord, I want to thank you for loving us, revealing yourself to us, and seeking us. That we might, in turn, know you and love you and put our faith in you for salvation. Thank you for initiating your protection. Help us to bask in these truths this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together as we close. Sing out a great old hymn. Emphasize God is our refuge. He hideth my soul. Let's sing this out together. most important thing our church can communicate with you is the gospel message. The word gospel means good news. The trouble with most good news is that it isn't really good until you see it relative to bad news. The discovery of a new cure isn't all that helpful unless you or a loved one has the disease that it cures. In the same way, the good news of Jesus is good when it is understood in relation to the bad news of our own sin. We are all sinners. That's the disease we are all born with. And Jesus is the cure. The good news that everyone can live forever with God in heaven, not because of anything we can do, 
but because of what Jesus did in our place. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The truth that everyone, everywhere, at all times in history needs to hear is that salvation is only possible by putting our faith in Jesus Christ alone. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Would you put your faith in Jesus Christ today? Would you be willing to pray something like this and mean what you pray from your heart? Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I know I can do nothing to earn forgiveness and make myself right with you. Instead of dying for my own sins, I want to trust Christ and his death on the cross as payment for my sins. I want to repent from doing things my way and make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. The Bible tells us that those that repent from their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in this way shall be saved. Would you believe on him today? And if you did trust Christ today, if you did pray a prayer like the one suggested a moment ago and you really meant it, would you let us know? We want to help you grow in your understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe you have more questions about putting your faith in Christ and we have great resources to help you with that. The Exchange Bible Study is a four-week study on the character of God that will answer most of your questions about the gospel. We have men and women ready and waiting to go through that with you in person or virtually, depending on your situation. Maybe you put your faith in Christ today, or, or maybe you did years ago, but you feel like you've not grown in your faith. We want to help you with that as well. We have literally hundreds of helpful resources and dozens of believers ready to walk with you through them. Let us know how we can best encourage your journey of faith in Christ using one of the contact methods listed below. Jesus Christ loves you and wants to spend eternity with you. May God bless you as you seek to live your life for his honor and for his glory.